The last time I had the privilege of teaching, well, actually, no, I, a long time ago, about four weeks ago, between traveling to my grandparents and, and taking a break because I didn't want to start this series and, and have to break it up, I, I gave a teaching that was called, it had to be Shavuot. It was two parts. It was about Acts, which is what we're actually studying, a series on the book of Acts, and why Shavuot was such a pivotal important connector to Pentecost, right? To the giving of, of the Torah, to the, to the giving of the Spirit. And it had to be Shavuot. And, and there's a pivotal action at, at Pentecost in the book of Acts that's taking place there. And it is quite obvious. It is Haruach. It is the Spirit, right? The Spirit is poured out there in a new and profound way It's not a new way, it's a different way, because the Spirit had been active and alive prior to this, of course, throughout the Tanakh, throughout David and the Jewish people and and Israel and all these things. But the Spirit of God forms the foundation in chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Acts. We see it recurring over and over and over, and that's where we're going to go for the next few weeks into the High Holidays. Because as I shared with you last week, I believe that for this high holidays, or every high holidays, but this one in particular, I believe that God is calling us to a renewal and a refreshing of the spirit within us, life and and connection and excitement in new and profound ways. I believe we need that in the world, in the community, in Nachamu Ami, but especially in your hearts individually. And this is the time for that. So we're going to talk into the Spirit, okay? Now with that said, as I start talking about the Spirit today, some of you are going to dislike my direction, and you're going to dislike my conclusions. Others will like them, and that's the way it goes. And you know what? That is just fine and dandy with me. You absolutely have the freedom to to disagree. Matt Goddard told me one time, he's talking about 40-something years of preaching, he said, you know what, I can't tell you how many times I've said it. My job, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not trying to make you agree with me. I'm trying to only ask you to assess what it is that you already believe. I'm trying to ask you to evaluate what you already believe in light of some potentially new information that I may provide for you. So it's just fine if we don't agree, but know that that's my purpose, right? I'm a teacher. I'm not a math teacher. I'm a teacher. I can tell you that if I tell you that two plus two equals Very good. Two plus two equals four. It equals four. It absolutely equals four. You cannot argue with me about that. You can try, but it won't change. But that is not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about and the things that I teach on honestly are subjective. Math is not. And what I mean by that is we're talking about a subjective reality for people. Doggone it, son! The word of God is the truth is not subjective. 
You're right. If the truth is two plus two equals four, or gravity, or things like that, it's not. But what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and what that looks like and why that happens and when that happens and how you answer that is your truth, not the truth. How did you get to that truth? You derived it from Scripture? Yes, from your interpretation of Scripture. Or, or, or not worse yet, but, but possibly, not even your own interpretation of Scripture, something that someone else interpreted for you, which you absorbed uh, as, as your truth. So, so your truth is actually their truth. But doggone it, it is the truth. But it's a subjective truth. So all that to say, I'm going to present over the next few weeks my interpretation, my truth as I see it, that I have derived not just from something that something I, I, I ate like a plate of cheesy cauliflower and it spoke to me and gave me this truth, nothing weird. I studied to derive this. I studied the sages of Israel. I studied the church fathers. Personal and guided study from laymen to sages, from the Bible and from rabbinic writings and church writings, from fathers, scholars, from messianic luminaries, and yes, maybe even from Andy Stanley. <laughs> for one and only purpose did I do that, and for one and only purpose do I present that to you. Father, draw us closer to you. Psalm 145. The Lord is close to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. In truth. Father, God, let your truth be revealed plainly to us all as you would have us know. Because you want truth that's not subjective, it is God's truth from Him and only from Him. And that's not so easy. <clears throat> In this season, God, of Elul, I'm asking that you prepare our hearts for a new and powerful encounter with you. Today is 8 18 18. 8 is the number for new beginnings. 18 is the number for life. Today is the new beginning. I'm praying that the Rosh Hashanah holiday and the Yom Kippur holiday and these festival days that are coming up are for us a new beginning into more abundant life. 8-18-18, and not to be weird and numerological with you, but it just strikes me. We're going to start it today. We're going to dig into it, and we're going to learn it. And I want to go forward because I, I, I want to get this done. Ephesians 1.17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That you may operate in the power of the spirit that changed the world on a Shavuot in Jerusalem and is still changing the world to move 
powerfully among us. It is moving among us. So I'm going to start with a secret. Shh. Quiet. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives for so many different things. And I could call this, this is actually a series within a series. It's a series on the Spirit within the series of Acts. And I could call this the power of the Spirit. But I think there's a more appropriate and applicable name. And it's actually a question that needs answering. Not the power, but the purpose. What is the purpose of the Spirit? We need the power of the Spirit, but for what? And I'll answer that eventually, but I want to start with this more fundamental question. The Spirit has power. We need that power. And for a purpose, of course, but in a messianic synagogue, a Messiah Yeshua-centered, Torah foundation messianic synagogue, when we have the power of the Spirit, what should that look like? If we are spirit-filled in this synagogue, what should it look like? And I know what the church says it should look like. At least the Pentecostal church or or the charismatic church. Not all denominations believe in Pentecostal or charismatic gifts, but I'll tell you this, as of 2002, listen to this, according to the New International Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Movements, Pentecostals are everywhere. It didn't start that way, but they are now. 740 Pentecostal denominations, 6,500 non-Pentecostal denominations with large, organized, internal, charismatic movements, nearly 20,000 independent neo-charismatic denominations and networks. I'll be drawing from an article written by an author named Jacob Franzek, which is called The Historical Context of Pentecostalism. I'll draw from it a little bit today, but he points out that there are eight thousand languages being spoken among Pentecostals, not tongues. I mean, they're in a lot of places. Eight thousand. And that these charismatic churches tend to be some of the most popular and well-attended churches across the board, especially in countries where Christianity is illegal. Okay? And within that spectrum, though, there's not really a consensus of what this looks like. My question What does the Spirit look like? What does the power of the Spirit look like? What does it look like when it's moving among us? That is not answerable from observing Pentecostal churches because it's very different. But in general, we know what it means. Operating in the gifts, right? 1 Corinthians 12 stuff. Operating in the gifts, particularly Tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, healings, words of knowledge. Uh, 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 um, gosh, I can't, I can't think of for, just 1 Corinthians 12 stuff. We've had people come and go at NAMS over the years. NAMS is Nachamu Ami. We've had people come and go here because we weren't, in their opinion, operating in the gifts of the Spirit. We weren't spirit-filled, so they, they, they checked out. By whose definition? By the Pentecostal and charismatic definition of what it means to be spirit-filled. 
But back to my question, in a messianic synagogue, a Messiah Yeshua-centered, Torah-foundational synagogue, when we have the power of spirit, what should that look like? Should the power of the Holy Spirit, should our spirit filling in this synagogue look like an Assemblies of God church? Or an evangelical charismatic church? Because I can tell you that's what many, many modern messianic synagogues look like when you go in. Now, and I can tell you why that is. Do you want to know why that is that messianic synagogues look like charismatic churches? Because the modern messianic movement, which the messianic movement started in Jerusalem uh, in about the year, David would say about 10 or 12 BCE. I would say about 6 BCE with the birth of Messiah Yeshua. But uh, that's when the messianic movement started. But the modern messianic movement started in the late 60s with hippies and love childs, love children. And the state of the union, the world, was the United States was in a mess, but all these people were coming into the Jesus movement. And how were they coming in? Through the newly formed charismatic church, which had broken off from the Pentecostal church. And so they came in and said, hey, wait a minute, we, we're 60s love children. We're going to do these Pentecostal things, these charismatic things, but we're going to say the Shema while we do it. And we're going to sing songs with charismatic. We're going to do messianic beats while we're charismatic. And so that's why, the, that's why the complexion of many synagogues that you go to is that way. That's not... That's not, I'm not saying that as a slam. I'm saying that as an honest assessment. But is this right? And here's my question. Here's what really, I can't wrap my head around it. Is that the way we should look when, when, and I don't mean to be divisive or haughty, we are different than the church We are different in so many aspects. We don't celebrate the holidays that, we, that they do. We celebrate the Leviticus 23 festivals. We don't eat what they eat. We adhere to the Torah to determine what we eat. We don't worship on Sunday. We honor the Shabbat with a level of sanctity that if I can just be prideful for a moment, I think the level of sanctity that it deserves I think we do take the commandment more seriously to honor the Shabbat. We pray along these paths of ancient liturgy modeled on the temple service. We are, we are informed by Yeshua in his Jewish practice. We study ancient Jewish texts to give us insight into the milieu of, Jew, of Jesus' Jewish culture and context. And for goodness sakes, we take this to mean something in our lives. We take the Torah not as something that's passed away or Israel as some dispensationalist nightmare. This is applicable to us. So we read it, we study it, and we apply it. We're different. So why then should our idea of the Spirit not also potentially look very different? informed by Jewish context. 
like the rest of our lives, like a Messianic Jewish context, the book of Acts in a Jewish context, where is the Messianic expression of the Spirit? Where is it? I'll tell you something, Damien, that's a good question. I don't hear any tongues, healings, words of knowledge, prophecy. Where are the gifts? Is that what we should be looking for? I'm asking you a lot of questions. Haven't given you any answers yet. But that's what the church says it looks like. And again, we don't accept so many other things, so many other areas that they say, so should a Messianic synagogue look like a Pentecostal church? Or should we really look like what we say we want to be? The first century community of Acts believers who gathered together for the prayers, who went to the temple, who like, we can't go to the temple, but you know, they lived this Jewish life. Or should we look like what is now known as a spirit-filled church? It is actually humorous to me to imagine that the name of the movement Pentecostal came from the idea that 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 form of worship and practice was the worship practice of the first century. Pentecostal website, because of the commitment to biblical authority, spiritual gifts, and the miraculous, Pentecostals tend to see their movement as reflecting the same kind of spiritual power and teachings that were found in the apostolic age of the early church. Let me tell you something. If Yeshua came, or Shaul, or Peter, or James came and saw some of the things that I've seen in the name of the Spirit... That is not a good reflection of what the apostolic community in the first century looked like. And to name name the movement Pentecost without having really informed context of, of what was really going on at Pentecost, that seems humorous to me. That's not what first century believers did. The first century believers who I already said were going to the temple engaging in the prayers. We know that that definition is not exactly true for the first century. We know the horrible misinterpretations of Acts and the entire New Testament. And again, I'm not being adversarial. I'm being honest. Every single week almost, we correct something. But how did we get to this definition? We need the spirit, we need the power, we need to know the purpose and what it looks like, but how did we get to this definition of what it looks like? Well, I can tell you. Oh, darn, let's see. Did I bring my briefcase? Jonathan, go in my office. Go uh, see if there's a book called Gifts of the Spirit on my desk or in my briefcase. Try to move slower if you can. I don't want you to hurt yourself. Huh? Yeah, watch out. There's been a snake in my briefcase before. How did we get to the... There really was a snake in my briefcase. You guys remember that? It changed my life, actually. It changed my life. There was a young rattlesnake in my briefcase when I went to pick it up to leave on a Shabbat evening. For those of you who were not privy to this story, I had been having these dreams 
God had been showing me these different weird, I, I guess it was God, I'm pretty sure the snake confirms that it was. I was having these dreams of snakes and when I would walk around the synagogue, I kept having these weird thoughts that I was going to come up on a snake. And I'd look out the window, like right out my courtyard thing there and expect to see a snake and I never did. And then one Shabbat, I was packing up a good message that I, had, that I thought was good, packing up my stuff and went to pick up my briefcase and opened it up to put something in it and a snake crawled over the books and down into my, it was in there, but when I opened the flap, the thing freaked out and crawled down into the bottom of my briefcase. And so the cleaning crew was here and I probably screamed like a little five-year-old girl. I don't remember what I did, but I know I was freaked out. I know that. And I went outside, I actually got it out of my briefcase, did a very smart thing, grabbed it by the tail, that's like the dumbest thing you ever do, threw it in a thing and went outside, and when I put it down on the ground out there, it coiled up and began to do its little thing with its tail, and it was a rattlesnake. And God had prepared me for that, and I credit that to the Holy Spirit. But that has nothing to do with this week's message. Except that we need the Spirit in case there's a rattlesnake in your briefcase. Right? I asked Mac, who'd been out here for 20 years, I said, have you ever seen a a snake in the building? He said, I've never seen a snake on the premises. So anyway, Um, back, I'm sorry, I got us way off. My question was, how did we get to the definition that we have of what what the Holy Spirit looks like? I want to ask you, I want to read you something, and I'm going to do it in an exciting way to keep you awake. To make my point about what the manifestation of the Spirit looks like, a little church history is absolutely necessary. And the thing is, when I say church history, we're not going back to the first century. We're not going back to the foundations of Torah. We're not going back to the mid-ages. We're not medieval period. We're not going back to 1500. We're not going back very far. Okay? This is recent history. 19th century and forward. The historical context of Pentecostalism, I'm reading from this. And strangely, this whole challenge begins with the Word of God and an argument over it. How did we get here? In 1906, an African-American pastor named William J. Seymour. Anyone know William J. Seymour? Okay. Well, um, let 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 me, I want to pause that. Let me, let me give you this other very important history. And it's, it's history. So now like I am being a teacher, two plus two equals math, this is history, this happened. In the late 1800s, there was something, well, early, early 1800s and into the 1900s, there was something that began to develop in Germany that was called higher criticism. It was a way of interpreting the Bible that the Bible couldn't be taken literally. It wasn't really, that it, that, and, and, and we needed to reevaluate it and really kind of tear it apart. And some other things began to happen. And higher criticism made its way to the United States. And when it did, and eventually around the, or I don't remember when, early 1900s, mid, mid, it became known as the modernist movement, modernism. Modernism, modernism took an idea of higher criticism and applied it still to interpreting the Bible, but said that the Bible needed to be interpreted through science and through rationality. 
Do you remember anyone own or have heard of the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon? Charles Briggs, who was one of the contributors, was a Presbyterian modernist. Charles Briggs was tried, basically, by the Presbyterian movement as a heretic and kicked out of the Presbyterian movement because he was a modernist. He believed that we needed to evaluate the Bible differently than we had, and so so did his whole movement. But there was another side of this, of course, and they had a good name, the fundamentalists. And what were the fundamentalists? Well, they got that name around 1920, but it was because of this big book of, over the course of four or five years, a series of lectures from authors who are fundamentalist authors, and you know what the the release was called? The Fundamentals. And it was why everything about modernism was wrong. And and we needed to have, the Bible is inerrant, there is absolutely no compromise, there's no other interpretation other than the one that we have known for years, evolution, remember the, the Scopes monkey trial? William Jennings Bryan and another one, that was a fundamentalist, modernist trial. The fundamentalists and evolution, like that was a big deal. And we've seen, now fundamentalist has a new word because of Islam and other things like that. But this was a, these were believers, this was Christianity. And so these movements at the end of the 19th century and into the early 19th century hated each other. And there was constant disarray. And, uh, gosh, what was that? I forgot the other thing. Oh, oh, oh. And, and you, do you know who the victim is in that? You know who suffers when things like that happen? You do. All the people who are utterly confused because both sides actually make sense to some degree. And I'm not, you, I'm not standing up here talking about evolution or anything. The thing is, that leaves the people in a quandary. And that's what was happening around 1900, 1890 on and into early 1900. So with, with that said, that's actually quite an amazing Quite an amazing study. You can even just use Wikipedia to look it up. Look up modernists, look up fundamentalists, and look at the things that have gone on. This is all about how we got to where we are today. Now actually, we could argue that Orthodox Jews are fundamentalists as well, and they are in a certain way. But it happens to be uh, another, that happens to be another sermon. Fundamentalists were screaming for a return to the fundamentals. Modernists were screaming for, to, to evolve. And the people are in the middle, caught in a rage. But in 1906, in a little town called Los Angeles, anyone heard of it? 1906, William J. Seymour relocated. And I already asked you, who knows who William J. Seymour is? Oh, goodness sakes. In 1906, an African-American preacher named William J. Seymour arrived in Los Angeles to find a congregation to pastor. He ended up at a holiness congregation. Anyone familiar with the holiness movement? Holiness movement. 
It's a rejuvenation of a Wesleyan theology called the second act of divine grace, which really translates to sanctification. We get become believers, and then whether, whether an instantaneous process or over a period of time, there's a second act of divine grace that God performs for us, and we become sanctified. This was the sanctification movement of, of Wesleyan theology, Methodist theology, and the holiness movement in the 1800s began to, to come back to this and say, we need to look at this. We're, we're going to adopt this. We believe this because by the second act of divine grace, we learn how to not sin because it sanctifies us, okay? The holiness, uh, he ended up at a holiness congregation, our friend William J. Seymour. The holiness movement, an offshoot of Methodism, I just said that, emphasizes the sanctification of the believer. Seymour agreed with the holiness doctrine, but under the influence of a proto-Pentecostal advocate of miraculous healing named Frank Sanford. Anyone know Frank Sanford? You should know Frank Sanford. He took a step further. In addition to salvation and sanctification, a third act of grace was added the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way, evidenced by miracles such as speaking in tongues. So now we have the first century belief that we need to become saved, receive the Holy Spirit. We add to that the second act of divine grace, which is the Wesleyan theology picked up by the holiness movement, which says we have a divine sanctification process that takes us on. Now, through Seymour, and what's happening, we have a third act of grace which takes place, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit normally as evidenced by speaking in tongues. Seymour's holiness congregation rejected this teaching. He retreated to a house fellowship at which several members of the little congregation began to speak in tongues. Convinced that he was witnessing a revival and that his teaching had been vindicated, Seymour relocated his congregation to 312 Azusa Street. Anyone ever heard of Azusa Street? Okay. You should know about Azusa Street as we're trying to figure out what the Spirit of God should look like. Azusa Street, well, I'll just read, I'll read you a little bit. Almost immediately after the founding of the Azusa Street Church, a now famous earthquake struck San Francisco, destroying most of the city, killing most of the people. At this point, this Azusa Street Revival and everything that was going on, the fundamentalist movement picked up this earthquake in San, in San Francisco and said, this is God's judgment on the earth. Jesus is coming back. This is God's judgment on the earth. The world is going to end. You better get right. You need revival. This sense of apocalyptic judgment combined with the apparent miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit on Azusa Street led the little church to swell to 1,500 attendees daily. Many of these were pilgrims from other churches and movements, hoping to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and bring it back to their own churches. Seymour started a paper called The Apostolic Faith, which further extended the influence of his teachings. As a result, many churches and extended networks of churches, new denominations in the making, began to form around the idea of a third act of grace, the baptism of the Holy Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues. This represents the birth of the Pentecostal movement, which still today can be characterized essentially by the same distinctive message. 
Frank Sanford, William J. Seymour, William Parham. These are the names of the guys who were operating on the earth 112 years ago. The entire complexion of Western religion changed 112 years ago. That obviously doesn't strike you as amazing as it does to me. That is nothing. That is no time at all. Do you remember those numbers I gave you about Protestant, about uh, Pentecostals? Here's some more from Pew Research, 2011. 279 million Pentecostals worldwide, and the movement is growing in many parts of the world, especially the global south. Since the 60s, Pentecostalism has, has increasingly gained acceptance from other Christian traditions, and Pentecostal beliefs concerning spirit baptism and spiritual gifts have been embraced by non-Pentecostal Christians in Protestant and Catholic churches throughout the charismatic movement. Together, Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity numbers over 500 million adherents. 112 years. I know you hear that, but do you hear that? The Encyclopedia of Christianity, uh, William Erdman's publishing 99, while in Houston, Texas, where he had moved his headquarters, Parham came in contact with William Seymour, an African-American Baptist holiness preacher. Seymour took from Parham the teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not the blessing of sanctification, but rather a third work of grace that was accompanied by the experience of tongues. Do you understand? William Parham created this in 1896. There were very, 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 very few occurrences of anything like this recorded, maybe among Quakers and a few little uh, sporadic things that had gone on up until this. But now, this movement, these guys interacting, they created this. Five hundred million believers basing their picture of God, revelation, and the Holy Spirit on a movement that was birthed just over a century ago. A third act of grace. You familiar with that? You know about that? It's not new. I've taught on all of this before a few years ago, but it's even more amazing to me now. For some reason, God is showing me some new things. What do we know about these guys? Frank Sanford, I want you to do, I want you to go home after Shabbat, get on the internet, and I want you to look up Frank Sanford, and I want you to look at what he was and how he influenced William Parham by going to his Shiloh camp where they were doing these healings. And then William Parham eventually who lost it and freaked out and they killed two of his people doing some sort of exorcism. And William J. Seymour, this probably a very precious black man, son of slaves in Louisiana who went to Azusa Street and all this stuff was happening and Parham showed up out there. And I know I'm talking a while, but you need to know this. Parham showed up out there and he said, this isn't what tongues look like. You're doing this wrong. And he began to speak badly of William Seymour. And Azusa Street only lasted a few years. But then pa Seymour 
after being berated by Parham, then went on a rampage and said that we're not going to have any white leadership in this movement. And eventually, I'll save that one. I'll save that. But I just want you to look up Frank Sanford. And I want you to look up these guys and realize when I'm asking you the question, how did we get to that picture of the Holy Spirit? That's it. No, it's in Acts. No, it's not. Not like that. And I told you some of you might not like me for saying this, and this is going to end well, I promise you. Maybe not today, but by the end of it. And you're going to have to stay tuned because I got to wake you up a little bit just to give you some history and awareness. Not that you're dumb, not that you're asleep. I'm just saying, I ask you how many people know Frank Sanford? Nobody. William Seymour? A few. Azusa Street, everybody knows it. But did you know what happened there? And what happened after? And the impact it's had on the world? Okay? And so, um, well, I I am going to tell you this. I am going to give you this. Seymour, after William J. Seymour, African-American pastor, Azusa Street, founder, kicked out of Azusa Street, had a fight, eventually ended up denouncing tongues as being the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what he selected instead, love. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts. 13, 13 talks about what? Love, and it does what? It supersedes all. That's where Seymour ended up. He still believed in tongues, but he didn't believe that that was the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The founder of Azusa Street movement. But yet, but yet, this defines what the Holy Spirit should look like for us. We are criticized for reading the Torah, for reading rabbinic writings and trying to live our lives according to guys, sages of Israel who were basing everything on what they are reading in the text. Well, they didn't believe in Yeshua. These guys didn't believe in listening to anyone. Everything they got came from the Holy Spirit, they said. They renounced training. They renounced teaching And they fed off of each other. We are criticized for studying Talmud? That's not right. For doing weird things and being legalistic to man-made tradition, something's wrong there. But that way of thinking informs our way of thinking of what moving in the Spirit looks like. And here's what I'm going to say. I had no intention to go this long. Give me just a minute. You with me? Give me a minute. It's a quote from Jordan Levy, who's a a young woman, a scholar. I, I really like her writings. She summarizes the point of view of the next few weeks so well, and I want you to hear it. And imagine I'm saying it. It's crucial to study Judaism's teaching on matters such as the gifts of tongues, as well as the other gifts, prophecy, healing, discernment, etc. Not because Jewish thought is inherently better or superior, but because a Jewish approach will better represent the worldview of the Messiah and the apostles. 
We live our lives in a Messianic synagogue centered on trying to understand the Bible in its context and Jewish Jesus. That's what we want. We want to see Acts as they lived it, the move of the Spirit as the Bible demonstrates it, and that will be in a Jewish context. So the answer to my question, which I've referred to multiple times, should it look like this? Are you ready for the answer? In my opinion, no. The Holy Spirit is special. The Holy Spirit is present when something amazing is happening. And I want you to hear this very clearly. I am not discounting anyone's personal experience. Because I know I have friends, I have been uh, in circles with a a number of like uh, 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 prayer language and, and speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of things. Like I am not being critical of someone's personal experience. First of all, because it's yours. It's your personal experience. But secondly, because I don't know all the mysteries of God and I don't know exactly what God does and how He does it for certain people. And I absolutely believe that the Spirit of God has done miraculous things that are inexplicable. At Azusa Street, as an example, guy was walking by, someone was in there praying in tongues. Jewish guy walking by, heard him praying in Hebrew. He doesn't know Hebrew. He went in there and became a believer, a disciple of Yeshua, because someone in Azusa Street was praying in tongues, but it was Hebrew. And this guy heard the gospel. I believe it. I believe in that. And I'm not discounting you, your personal experience, and I'm not discounting God. 1,500 people per day coming to Azusa Street. Something was happening there. An awakening, a revival. The church was in a mess. He was gathering his people back to him. God was. God was creating a revival. He was gathering his people back to them. Karov Adonai Lechol Karov. He was calling them near. And the Spirit is a manifestation of that, of something special, something amazing. And I believe that. And the Spirit is there when new things are happening, creation. He's there when special things are happening, acts. I believe that. But I also believe, as is the case, when man is involved with God's work, we can go off track. And I believe that has happened in an understanding of the Spirit. The Spirit is special. Tongues has laid the foundation largely of what operating in the Spirit should look like for a believer. Because of what we've talked about today. Based on a 106-year-old interpretation, 106 years old. Based on Pentecostal charismatics, are these things inherently bad? Do I have room to criticize their practice? No, and I don't intend to. That's not my thing. But I do have the authority to teach my congregation an informed way, a different perspective if God is revealing that to me. And I have questions. And next week we'll look, starting in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, as Yeshua prophesied in the book of Acts. Shabbat Shalom.